Chapter 4 The Savior Lifted Up and the Look of Faith As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 14 and 15 And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. John 12, 32 and 33. In order to make this subject plain, I will read the passage referred to. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Numbers 21, 6-9. This is the passage to which Christ alluded in the text. The object in both cases was to save people from perishing. The bite of the serpent, its influence being unchecked, is the death of the body. The effects of sin, unpardoned and uncleansed from the heart, are the ruin of the soul. Christ is lifted up so that sinners who believe in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. John 3.16 In such a connection, to perish cannot mean annihilation, for it must be the opposite of eternal life, and this is plainly much more than eternal existence. It must be eternal happiness real life in the sense of wonderful enjoyment, and the counterpart of this, eternal misery, is presented under the term perish. It is common in the scriptures to find a state of endless misery contrasted with one of endless happiness. We can observe two points of analogy between the brass serpent and Christ. One, Christ must be lifted up as the serpent was in the wilderness. From the passage quoted above out of John 12, it is plain that this refers to his being raised up from the earth upon his cross at his crucifixion. 2. Christ must be held up as a remedy for sin, even as the brass serpent was held up as a remedy for a poison. It is not uncommon in the Bible to see sin represented as a disease or malady. For this malady, Christ had healing power. He professed to be able to forgive sin and to cleanse the soul from its moral pollution. 
he continually claimed to have this power, and he encouraged people to rely upon him and to turn to him to avail themselves of it. In all his personal instructions, he was careful to explain himself as having this power and as being able to provide a remedy for sin. In this respect, the serpent of brass was a type of Christ. Whoever looked upon this serpent was healed. Christ does not just heal from punishment, for to this the analogy of healing is less applicable. But he especially heals from sinning. He heals the heart from sin. He heals the soul and restores it to health. So it was said by the announcing angel, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 His power avails to cleanse and purify the soul. Both Christ and the serpent were lifted up as a remedy, and let it be especially noted that they were lifted up as a full and adequate remedy. The ancient Hebrews, bitten by fiery serpents, were not to mix up concoctions of their own devising to help with the cure. It was all sufficient for them to look up to the remedy that God provided. God wanted them to understand that the healing was entirely his own work. The serpent on a pole was the only external object connected with their cure. They were to look to this, and in this most simple way, only by an expecting look that was indicative of simple faith, they received their cure. Christ is to be lifted up as a present remedy. So was the serpent. The cure that was worked then was present and immediate. It involved no delay. This brass serpent was God's appointed remedy, and Christ is a remedy appointed of God, sent down from heaven for this specific purpose. It was indeed very wonderful that God would appoint a brass serpent for such a purpose, such a remedy for such a malady. It is no less wonderful that Christ was lifted up in agony and blood as a remedy for both the punishment and heart power of sin. The brass serpent was a divinely certified remedy. It was not a remedy mixed together as thousands are with fancy-sounding names and fiery testimonials, but it was a remedy prepared and brought forth by God himself under his own testimony of its plentiful healing virtues. So was Christ. The Father testifies to the perfect adequacy of Jesus Christ as a remedy for sin. Jesus Christ must now be lifted up from the pulpit as one crucified for the sins of men. His great power to save lay in his atoning death. He must not only be lifted up from the pulpit, but this display of his person and work must be endorsed and not contradicted by the experience of those who behold him. Suppose that in Moses' time, many who looked at the brass serpent were seen to be still dying. 
who could have believed the unqualified declaration of Moses that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. It is the same here in the gospel and its witnesses. Undoubtedly, the Hebrews had before their eyes many living witnesses who had been bitten and yet bore the scars of those wounds, but who, by looking, had been healed. Every such case would go to confirm the faith of the people in God's word and in his own power to save. So, Christ must be represented in his fullness, and this representation should be powerfully endorsed by the experience of his friends. Christ represents himself as one ready and willing to save. This, therefore, is what is to be shown. This must be sustained by the testimony of his living witnesses. The first point of the analogy is the lifting up of the object to be looked upon, and the second is this very looking itself. People looked upon the serpent, expecting divine power to heal them. Even those ancient people in that comparatively dark age understood that the serpent was only a type and not the very cause in itself of salvation. There is something very remarkable in the relation of faith to healing. For example, take the case of the woman who had an issue of blood. Matthew 9, 20-22 and Luke 8, 43-48. She had heard something about Jesus and somehow had caught the idea that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be made whole. She forced her way through the crowd, pale, trembling, and faint with weakness. If you had seen her, you would have wondered what this poor dying invalid was trying to do. She knew what she was trying to do. At last, unnoticed by all, she reached the spot where the Holy One stood. She put forth her feeble hand and touched his garment. Suddenly he turned and asked, Who touched me? Somebody touched me. Who was it? The disciples, astonished at such a question asked under such circumstances, replied, The multitude crowds you on every side, and dozens of people are touching you every hour. Why then do you ask, Who touched me? The fact was that somebody had touched him with faith to be healed thereby, and he knew that the healing virtue had gone forth from himself to some believing heart. How beautiful an illustration this is of simple faith, and how wonderful the connection between the faith and the healing. In the same way, the Hebrews received that wonderful healing power by simply looking toward the brass serpent. No doubt this was a great mystery to them, yet it was nonetheless a fact. Let them look, for looking brings the cure, although not one of them can explain how the healing virtue comes. So we are really to look to Christ, and in looking we receive the healing power. 
It does not matter how little we understand how the looking operates to give us the remedy for sin. Looking to Jesus implies that we look away from ourselves. There is to be no mixing up of phony medicines along with the great remedy. Such a course is always sure to fail. Thousands fail in just this way. They forever try to be healed partly by their own empty, self-willed works, as well as partly by Jesus Christ. There must be no looking to man or to any of man's efforts or help. All dependence must be on Christ alone. As this is true in reference to pardon, so it is also true in reference to sanctification. This is done by faith in Christ. It is only through and by faith that you get that divine influence, the Spirit of God, that sanctifies the soul. It was this faith in action that was the power that healed the Hebrews in the wilderness. Looking to Christ implies looking away from ourselves in the sense of not relying at all on our own works for the cure desired, not even on works of faith. The looking is toward Christ alone as our all-prevalent, all-sufficient, and ever-present remedy. There is a constant tendency in Christians to depend on their own works and efforts and not on simple faith in Christ. The woman with the issue of blood seems to have toiled many years to find relief before she came to Christ. She had no doubt tried everybody's prescriptions and also strained the capacity of her own ingenuity to its utmost. But all was of no avail. At last she heard of Jesus. He was said to do many wonderful works. She said within herself, This must be the promised Messiah who is to bear our sicknesses and heal all the maladies of men. Oh, let me rush to him, for if I may but touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. She did not stop to philosophize upon the manner of the cure. She did not lean on anyone's philosophy, and she had none of her own. She simply said, I have heard of one who is mighty to save, and I flee to him. It is the same way in being healed of our sins. Despairing of all help in ourselves or in any other name than Christ's, and assured there is virtue in him to work the cure. We expect it of him, and we go to him to obtain it. Several times within the last few years, people have come to me with the question, Can I somehow be saved from my sins, actually saved, so as not to fall again into the same sins and under the same temptations? I have answered, Have you ever tried looking to Jesus? Oh, yes, they said. But did you expect to actually be saved from sin by looking to Jesus and to be filled with faith, love, and holiness? No, I did not expect that. Now, suppose someone had looked at the brass serpent for the purpose of speculation. 
He has no faith in what God says about being cured by looking, but he is inclined to try it. He will look a little and watch his feelings to see how it affects him. He does not believe God's word, but since he is not absolutely sure that it is not true, he will agree to try it. This is not at all looking in the sense of our text. This would not have cured the bitten Israelite, nor can it heal the poor sinner. There is no faith in it. Sinners must look to Christ with both desire and intent to be saved. Salvation is the object for which they look. Suppose someone had looked toward the brass serpent, but without any willingness or purpose to be cured. This could do him no good. Nor can it do sinners any good to think of Christ in any way other than as Savior, and as Savior for their own sins. Sinners must look to Christ as a remedy for all sin. To want to make some exception that keeps some sins but agrees to abandon others indicates blatant rebellion of heart, and this can never be accepted by the all-seeing one. There cannot be honesty in the heart that proposes to itself to seek deliverance from sin only in part. Sinners can look to Christ at once without the least delay. They do not need to wait until they are almost dead under some final disease. For the bitten Israelite, it was of no use to wait and delay looking to the serpent until he found himself in the grip of death. He might have said, I am clearly wounded, but it is not swollen much yet. I do not feel the poison spreading through my system. I cannot look yet for my case is not yet desperate enough. I could not hope to excite the compassion of the Lord in my present condition, and therefore I must wait. There was no need of such delay then, nor is there any more need or use for it in the sinner's case now. We must look to Christ for blessings promised, not to works, but to faith. It is curious to see how many mistakes are made on this point. Many people want there to be great mental agony, long fasting, many bitter tears, and strong crying for mercy before deliverance can be looked for. They do not seem to think that all these manifestations of grief and distress are not of the slightest help because they are not simple faith, nor any part of faith, nor indeed any help toward faith. They are not needed at all for the sake of acting on the sympathies of the Savior. It is all as if under the plague of serpents in the wilderness, people had set their minds at work to put together phony remedies with creams and ointments and bandages and pills. All this treatment could avail nothing. There was only one effective cure, and if someone were only bitten and knew it, this would be the only preparatory step necessary to his looking as directed for his cure. It is the same in the case of the sinner. 
If someone is a sinner and knows it, this is all he needs in order to go to Jesus. It is all of no avail to try to put together various prescriptions and to mix up remedies of his own devising and to add to the great remedy that God has provided. Yet there is a constant tendency in religious efforts toward this very thing, toward fixing up and relying upon an indefinite multitude and variety of spiritually false remedies. See that sinner over there? See how he toils and agonizes? He would compass heaven and earth to work out his own salvation in his own way, to his own credit, and by his own works. See how he worries himself in the multitude of his own plans and ideas? He commonly finds himself in the deep mire of despair before he arrives at simple faith. Sadly, he cries, there can be no hope for me. My soul is lost. At last, the gleam of a thought breaks through the thick darkness of his mind. Possibly Jesus can help me. If he can, then I will live, but not otherwise. For certainly there is no help for me except in him. There he is in his despair. He is bowed in weariness of soul and is worn out with his vain efforts to help himself in other ways. He now turns to help from above. There is nothing else I can do except cast myself in all my hopelessness completely upon Jesus Christ. Will he receive me? Maybe he will, and that is enough for me to know. He thinks about it a little more. Maybe yes. Maybe he will. I think he will, for they tell me he has done so for other sinners. I think he will. Yes, I know he will. And here is my guilty heart. I will trust him. Yes, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Job 13, 15. Have any of you experienced anything like that? Maybe he will acknowledge my plea. Maybe he will hear my prayer. This is as far as the sinner can dare to go at first. But soon you hear him crying out. He says he will. I must believe him. Then faith gets hold of him and rests on promised faithfulness. Before he realizes it, his soul is like the chariots of Aminadab, Song of Solomon 6.12, and he finds his heart full of peace and joy as someone who is on the borders of heaven. Remarks 1. When it is said in John 12.32 that I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me, the language is indeed general in form, but cannot be understood as strictly general without being brought into conflict with Bible truth and known facts. It is indeed a common manner of speaking to signify a great multitude. I will draw great numbers, 
a great multitude, which no man could number. Revelation 7, 9. There is nothing here in the context or in the subject to require the strictly universal interpretation. 2. This method of the brass serpent was no doubt designed to test the faith of the Israelites. God often put their faith to the test and often adapted his methods to educate their faith, to draw it out and develop it. He did many things to prove them, and he did so again in this case. They had sinned. Fiery serpents came among them, and many Israelites were poisoned and were dying on every hand. God said, Make a brass serpent and set it upon a pole, and then raise it high before the eyes of all the people. Now let the sufferers look on this serpent, and they will live. This put their faith to the test. 3. It is conceivable that many people perished through mere unbelief, although the provisions for their salvation were most abundant. We look at a serpent of brass, they might say scornfully, as if there were not impostors enough among the people, but Moses must give us yet another? Maybe some people began to think about the matter. They say, We will much sooner trust our tried physicians than these old wives' fables. What philosophical connection can anyone see between looking upon a piece of brass and being healed of a serpent's bite? Many people talk like this about the gospel. They wonder how any healing power can result from gospel faith. They hear some people say they are healed and that they know the healing power has gone to their very soul. They say, I looked to Jesus, and I was healed and made whole from that very hour. However, they consider all this as mere fanatical delusion. They can see none of their philosophy in it. But is it fanaticism? Is it any more strange that a person bitten by a poisonous serpent would be healed at God's command by looking at a brass serpent? 4. Many people stumble at the simplicity of the gospel. They want something more complex. They want to see through it. They will not trust what they cannot explain. It is on this basis that many people stumble at the doctrine of sanctification by faith in Christ. It is so simple that their philosophy cannot see through it. However, the analogy provided in our text is complete. People are to look to Jesus so that they may not perish, but may have eternal life. John 3.15 And who does not know that eternal life involves entire sanctification? 5. The natural man always seeks for some way of salvation that will be altogether believable to himself. He wants to work out some form of self-righteousness, and he is not concerned about trusting in Christ alone, 
it does not seem to him natural or philosophical. 6. There is a startling and most alarming state of things in many churches. There is almost no Christ in their experience. It is most evident that he holds an exceedingly small space in the hearts of many who profess to follow Jesus. So far from knowing what salvation is as something to be attained by simply believing in Christ, they can only give you an experience of this sort. If you ask one of these people how he became a Christian, the answer is often, I just made up my mind to serve the Lord. Is that all? That's all. Do you know what it is to receive eternal life by simply looking to Jesus? I don't think I understand that. Then you're not a Christian. Christianity from beginning to end is received from Christ by simple faith. In this way, and only in this way does the pardon of sin come to the soul, and only in this way can come that peace of God that passes all understanding and that lives in the soul with faith and love. In this way, sanctification comes through faith in Christ. What then will we think of that religion that leaves Christ out of view? Many are looking for some wonderful sign or token, not understanding that it is by faith that they are to be brought completely into fellowship with Christ and into participation with his own life. By faith, Christ unites them to himself. Faith working by love draws them into living union with his own moral being. All this is done by simply looking to Christ in faith. When the brass serpent was up, many people no doubt perished because they would not accept and act upon such a simple remedy. Many people perished because they did not and would not realize their danger. If they saw people cured, they would say, We don't believe it was done by the brass serpent on the pole. Those people were not much poisoned, so would not have died anyway. They assumed that those who ascribed their cure to the power of God were mistaken. Many also perished from delay. They waited to see whether they were in danger of dying. They continued to wait until they were so sick and weak that they could only lie down and die. Now. In regard to the gospel, some people are occupied with other matters that they consider more important, and of course they must delay. Many are influenced by others' opinions. They hear many stories. Such a person looked yet lost his life. Another man did not look yet was saved. People have different opinions about their professedly Christian neighbors and this causes many to stumble. They hear that some people set out strong for Christianity, but seem to fail. They looked up as they thought about these things, but all in vain. Maybe it was so because they might have looked without real faith. 
Some will philosophize until they make themselves believe it is all a delusion to look. They think they see many people who pretend to look and seem to look who do not find healing. Who can believe where there are so many stumbling blocks? We can imagine that these discouraging appearances drove some people into despair in the wilderness. And certainly we see that the same causes produce these effects here in the case of sinners. Some people think they have committed the unpardonable sin. They class themselves among those who were once enlightened, Hebrews 6.4, knowing that for them there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. Some are sure that it is too late for them now. Their heart is as hard as stone. All is dark and as desolate as the grave. Look at him over there. His very look is that of a lost soul. Some of you might now be reasoning and disbelieving in this very way. Many neglected to look because they thought they were getting better. They thought they saw some change of symptoms and some improvement. It is the same with sinners. They feel better after attending a church service, and if they show any improvement, they believe they are undoubtedly doing well. Many of the ancient Hebrews may have refused to look because they had no good hope and were indeed full of doubts. If you had been there, you would have found a great variety of conflicting views, often even between brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, and parents and children. Some ridiculed others. Some were mad. Some would not believe no matter what. Some sinners who should be seeking Christ today are deterred by reasons fully as frivolous and foolish as these. It is easy for us to see the analogy between the manner of looking and the reasons for not looking at the brass serpent and to Christ the Savior. I do not need to push the analogy into its precise particulars any further. But the question for you all now is... Do you really believe that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life? Do you understand the simple remedy of faith? Perhaps you ask what they were to believe. They were to believe that if they really looked at the brass serpent on the pole, they would certainly experience the needed healing. It was God's certified remedy, and they were to regard it as such. What are you now to believe? You are to believe that Christ is the great antitype of that serpent lifted up in the wilderness, and that you are to receive from him by simple faith all the blessings of a full and free salvation. Do you understand what is meant by simple faith? Do you ask, what? 
Can I, a sinner, just focus my eye in simple faith on Jesus? Who can do this? Can I? How can it be that I should have this privilege? I see here today some whom I saw last fall in the meetings when you were inquiring more about the gospel and God's truth. What have you been doing since then? Have you been trying to work yourselves into some specific state of mind? Do you intensely wish that you could only feel a certain way according to some ideal you have in your mind? Do you understand that you are really to look by faith? Let this look of faith be to you as the touch of the poor woman with an issue of blood was to her dying body. Mark 5, 24-34 Believing that if you look in simple trust, Jesus will surely receive you and give you his divine love, peace, life, and light, and really make them flow through your whole moral being. Do you believe it? No. Don't you see that you do not believe it? Oh, but you say, it is a great mystery. I am not going to explain it, nor will I pretend that I can do so any more than I can explain how that woman was healed by touching the hem of the Savior's garment. The touch in this case and the looking in that case are only the means, the method by which the power is to be received. The manner in which God operates is a thing of small consequence to us. Let us be satisfied that we know what we must do to secure the work of His divine Spirit in all things that pertain unto life and godliness. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 You have doubtless had confused ideas of the way of salvation. You might have been contriving and speculating and working based upon your own feelings. Now you pray, and having prayed, you say, Now let me watch and see if this prayer has given me salvation. This method is similar to if the Hebrew people, when bitten by serpents and commanded to look to the serpent of brass, would have gone about to apply here a bandage, their anointment, and then an examination, all the time losing sight of just that one thing that God told them would infallibly cure them. Oh, why would people forget, and why would they not understand, that all good needed by us comes from God through simple faith? When we see any need, Christ is there to be received by faith alone and his promises leave no need unprovided for. Now, if this is the way of salvation, how astonishing that sinners would look every other way except toward Christ, and would put forth every other type of effort except the effort to look at once in simple faith to their Savior. How often we see them discouraged and confounded, working so hard and so completely in vain. 
it is no wonder that they would be so greatly misled. Go around among the churches and ask if they ever expected to be saved from sin in this world. They do not expect to be saved from sin in this world, but they expect to be saved at death. If Christ has been quite unsuccessful in his efforts to sanctify your soul during life, do you think he will send death on in time to help the work through? Can you believe this? As long as Christians deny the glorious doctrine of sanctification by faith in Christ, both present sanctification and sanctification according to each person's faith, Matthew 9.29, it cannot be expected that they will teach sinners with simple clarity how to look to Christ in simple faith for pardon. Knowing so little of this power of faith in their own experience, how can they teach others effectively or even truthfully? Thus, with the blind leading the blind, it is no wonder that they both are found together where the Bible proverb represents both the leaders and the led as ending their mutual relations by both falling into the ditch. Matthew 15, 14. There seems to be no remedy for such a finality except for professing Christians to become the light of the world and toward this end, to learn the meaning and to know the experience of simple faith. Once they learn faith, they will experience its transforming power and will be able to teach others the way of life.